You're listening to Who's to Say with Tom Foolery. My purpose in producing this podcast is first, to lay my own thoughts and experiences out there so that we can connect honestly and genuinely. In doing so, I'll be exploring the parts of my world that bring me the greatest intellectual stimulation. Health, training, philosophy, religion, tennis, books, teachers, and much more. When I'm joined by guests, I like to employ the proprietary technique of intersation, the blend of interview and conversation that embraces a fluid structure while leaving ample room for candid expression and romps down rabbit holes. This core idea behind Who's to Say is in drawing out the lessons and wisdom from other people's experiences, mixing them with our own to create something magical, timeless, and unique. I hope you find it insightful and useful. Please leave a review on your podcast app, and if anything in these conversations really strikes you, please share with family and friends, even enemies, if you think it'll help them out too. And now, enjoy this particular rendition of Who's to Say. Welcome to this very special episode of Who's to Say. I'm your host, Tom Foolery. This is the second tennis show I'm doing, and I plan to do a lot. But this one is dedicated to someone I consider to be the greatest role model, especially in sport, that I've ever witnessed, Roger Federer. His career only recently concluded after 24 years as a professional. I'm 28 years old, so it's certainly the better part of my life, and I'm all the better for it to have watched him all these years. And as I proceed to tell his story, I'll weave in a couple of uh, historic moments of matches he's played. And there are so many intangibles that are connected with his career and I'll be touching on as many of them as I can conjure up. I'm already struggling to introduce this because uh, it's it's hard to put into words just what he's done for me, for the game, for tennis history. Uh, I, I think e- even with his retirement being so fresh, it's it's been hard to process. And I watched as many of the retirement celebrations as I could. They were all very emotional. Uh, I expect they will be today. Um and I'll be telling part of that story as well. But uh, even though statistics never tell the whole story, um, I think we know history is more complex than that. Statistics are only one part of the storyline. But uh, his presence at Grand Slams, for those of you who are unfamiliar with the uh, standards of tennis, it's like having four Super Bowls in a year to have the four Grand Slams, Australian Open, French Open, Wimbledon, and the U.S. Open rounding out the year. Uh he's been a fixture at those for basically two decades. And I think some of the most impressive records that he still holds and granted they're up for grabs now that he's out of the game. But, um, I I think this helps set the stage a little bit because as I get into some of the more human parts of his story, we can keep these in the back of our mind that he truly was a a stalwart at these slams for, basically the entirety of his career. So reaching the pinnacle of world number one is like climbing Mount Everest anyway, but he holds the record for most consecutive weeks at number one at 237 weeks. That's massively impressive to retain that spot despite, uh, as we know, so many rivals vying for it and, and just the ups and downs that you have over the course of a tennis year. Uh, one of the other really impressive streaks that he has the record for still is the longest grass, grass court winning streak at 65 matches. 
the grass court season is very short. It really only exists around Wimbledon, and that, that takes place in uh, late June, early July every year. So to win 65 matches, that spans several seasons. And it's certainly a surface that he dominated on like no one else uh, really surpassed a lot of his uh, historic peers from Bjorn Borg to Pete Sampras and the like. Uh, so I thought, I thought that was a really staggering feat to win 65 matches on one surface in a row. Uh, more, He has the record for most men's tour finals won in a row of 24. 24 times he reached a final at various levels and stages in the tour and won. That is surreal to think about every time and, and all the matches you have to win just to reach a final and he takes home the trophy 24 times in a row. Now to round out the statistics, th this is really, I think, the crux of how we've come to know him as such a, such a consistent champion. He holds the records for the most consecutive Grand Slam late round placements in a row, 36 consecutive Grand Slam quarterfinals, 23 consecutive Grand Slam semifinals, and 10 Grand Slam finals in a row. That level of consistency, and, and so much of sport is founded on consistency, especially in tennis, where you need consistent strokes that you can rely on. But, I mean, to, to win and perform that consistently is, of course, a, a next level. And we'll, we'll break down some of the, the very slim margins that get you to that uh, rarefied air of the tennis game, but to be in 10 Grand Slam finals in a row, and, and he took home most of those, is an overwhelmingly impressive feat, uh, which which speaks to his, I, I think more than his game, his character. How, how do you keep winning? Uh, how, how do you keep that intense focus? And there, there is an intense focus that is required. It, it's said a lot during matches that especially when you're, you're so closely paired with someone like his rivals, Rafael Nadal, Novak Djokovic, Andy Murray being the paramount three, uh, when you are so evenly matched, I, I hear commentators talk a lot in a match, who blinks first? Who loses their focus first? There are countless examples of, of closely contested games, especially tiebreakers as well, where you can't help but be so locked in that and and both opponents are experiencing the same uh intensity of focus that if you do blink if your focus wavers even for a moment even for a, a swing a point it changes the outcome of the match and the, i i think a, a further statistic that helps uh ju just drive this point home and I, I heard this recently on a podcast they were uh the hosts were reflecting on especially when Federer was in the prime of his career. You could say that was in the mid-2000s. I, I have a particular experience uh, that puts me at, at one of those historic moments. But um, in, in 2005, and uh, between 2005 and the end of 2006, so two full seasons on tour, Federer played 182 matches. That alone is... is and, I, and I don't quite have a comparison for it, but, I mean, gosh, if you figure two and a half, three hours plus on average, that's a lot of time on court in two years. His record in those two years was 173 wins and nine losses, which is a 95% winning percentage. I, I, I'm speechless even to think about that because the, the, the nuance that I'll bring to that particular statistic is that although he won 95% of the matches, over the course of a match, 
you lose so much, you lose so many points. And, and this is the supplementary statistic. The In those years, the tour average, and, and this is likely still consistent today, but the tour average of points won for any given pro is 53% of the points uh, won in a match. He, uh, Federer and Nadal, I believe it was, in those years in the 2000s, on average, they were winning 55% of the points. So a 2% difference in average points won in a match turns into a 95% match winning percentage, which is, I mean, that, I think, it doesn't quite sum up the story, but when you're talking about a 2% difference of points won in a match, and there's, there's some amazing statistical stories of when you have someone who loses the uh, total points one battle in a match, but you can still win the match. I mean, these are, these are the incredible complexities and nuances of tennis that you experience so much losing. You can lose, you know, more than half the points in a match and still come out the victor. And that is a testament to the resiliency to what we talk about in tennis as short-term memory. That's what I'm always talking about and telling my doubles partners is, hey, short-term memory, whatever happened to that last point, it really does not matter. It's such a such a finality to the, the, the conclusion and, and the rapid pace at which you have to move on because there's another ball coming back at you, there's another point to be played, and I think... Few people have done that as well as the handful of champions we've witnessed in the last, uh, you know, better part of, of two decades in Roger, Rafa, Novak. Uh, I'll, I'll give a nod to Andy Murray as well there. But uh, this is my segue into one, certainly one of the most uh, really dominant performances of Roger Federer's career. Uh, and it's where I'll have to uh, begin some of the the matches I wanted to highlight to to weave the threads of this story together. At the 2004 U.S. Open final, yours truly was sitting behind the baseline, not directly behind the baseline. Of course, I was 10 years old, so, so my, my memory probably has me uh, favoring my perspective a little bit more. But honestly, it felt like we were on top of the baseline as far as I was concerned. And this is still very early in Roger's career. It was, it was, he was number one in the world at the time, I believe. But it was clear that he was a whirlwind force that was coming to take over the tour. And I, I was not as privy to what brought him to that final. But in my research for this, I remembered uh, or, or determined that his quarterfinal opponent in 2004 was Andre Agassi, beloved American champion, eight-time slam champion, uh, U.S. Open winner multiple times, and certainly one of the, uh, I, I think before Roger, one of the most beloved tennis players in the world. And, and even still in 2004, of course, in the twilight of his career, Agassi and Roger would play a couple more times at the U.S. Open, but they battled over five sets in the 2004 U.S. Open quarterfinals. And Roger was victorious in that, won his semifinal. And when he arrived at the final, he was paired up against Leighton Hewitt. Leighton Hewitt was one of the best fighters and super talented athlete out of Australia. He now captains the Australian Davis Cup teams and is very influential in Tennis Australia. One of the, I, I think, 
premier world uh, or, or international organizations for tennis development. If you look at what the Aussies have done, even going back to the early part of the 20th century, it, it really is a world-class model. And now Leighton Hewitt is one of the people at the helm of that. But so, so for, for them to be combatants at the 2004 U.S. Open final, absolute barn burner. And, and going into that as a spectator, someone who was there live as a 10-year-old tennis fanatic, uh, couldn't ask for more. And not to be too anticlimactic, but the the result was an a one hour fifty minute thrashing of Federer over Hewitt. And and when I tell you no one, I mean I've I've gone through the annals of reports of this. No one was expecting that result. It was such a an overwhelming performance by Roger. Uh, really, there was no competitive element until deep into the second set. I think he could have served the set out at, I think it was 5-4. That set went to a tiebreaker. But the final scoreline was 6-love, 7-6, 6-love in an hour, 49 minutes. As I said, I mean, for, for Grand Slam matches, you're you're expecting to dig in for three-plus hours because it's best of five. It's the end of the tournament. You've got Certainly one of the best players in the world for many years. Leighton Hewitt was a world number one as well. And as I said, I mean, just a, a, a the epitome of a fighter. Court coverage was undeniable. And yet he was so significantly overpowered by Roger Federer. I think that's a testament to his greatness for sure. And so to be there as a 10-year-old, I mean, I, the memory is still such a flash in the pan. Because, I mean, less than two hours of a, of a September evening for the final of the U.S. Open, un- unprecedented, unheard of. I don't really think we've seen any finals like that since. And it was a very, very telling match uh, because how we came to understand Federer, especially in the years following that, now he went on to win, uh, I think it was f- four U.S. Opens in a row, uh, possibly five, Um I, I should have that note in front of me, but especially on the hard courts there, uh, that's a consistency year over year that's hard to fathom. And since he's several years older than Rafa and Novak, he was, I mean, totally paving his own runway for a takeoff into, not quite into the sunset. I mean, he did have some hiccups along the way, but uh, that, that is a sheer force of nature to be able to do that to another top competitor and, you know, it, it may seem like, seem like I've jumped right into the pinnacle of his career, but for me, it was a very impactful moment to be witness to such, to such greatness. And it didn't, it, even then it didn't seem easy. And, and this is something I wanted to address in this tribute that people associate with Roger Federer, this, this ease and grace that his game seemed so effortless and Yes, his game is beautiful and fluid and, and balletic, but uh, I, I, I like to think I was immune from thinking it was easy because as a, as a student of sport, and, and I try to make this distinction now uh, because especially lately in these matches where I, I find either a, a young player paired up against a vet like, like a Novak or Roger or Rafa or Vavrinka, uh, any of these vets who have been around for a while, uh, even if they're playing a young gun, I, I don't find myself really favoring anyone. And and certainly back when I'm 10 years old, I, I can't help but passionately favor my, my favorite player. 
But uh, but the distinction I'm making between being a fan versus a student is that now the habit I'm in is is observing and enjoying. So so if a couple years ago the French Open final was Novak Djokovic versus Stefano Tsitsipas, and I'm I'm a fan of both, uh, and I found myself going to that match. You know, certainly yes, I would love to see Novak win, win a French Open, another one, uh, add to his slam total. But I, more than anything, I want a competitive match that you can be immersed in and entertained by and enthralled by. And we certainly got that. And so to bring this back to Roger, it's really easy as a kid to be a fan, but especially knowing that once he made his retirement announcement, I had to go back and start watching classic matches and and really consume anything I could of his. I, I find myself making that transition into being more of a student of the game. And that serves my ambitions of being a tennis coach, of being a better player, is, is you can't help but learn. And it became more apparent to me that there, there's hardly anything effortless about Roger's game. He, he's such a gladiator. And, and yes, there is, a, as I said, a beautiful element to his performance. But uh, there's, a, there's an intensity beneath the surface that with other players, it is very overt. Arafa, he's, he's grunting, he's yelling. Um, he's swinging so hard. I mean, they all are, but even still, I, I, I can't help but intuit that for Roger to be able to produce that sort of performance, you know, there's a lot of work and suffering and discipline that went into that level of, of what he's able to do physically. And so one of the books I have over my shoulder is the master written by Christopher Clary came out in, uh, I believe August of last year, 2021. And that is one of the seminal publications I, I've read about Roger. Uh, there's a fair amount of collaboration. It was uh, an amalgamation of interviews over the years. It wasn't uh, them just sitting down to write this book, but it spanned his career to date. And some of the incredible uh, explorations of the history and how he came to be the incredible champion he he became Um, one of the people, and so this is very dear to my heart in this story, one of the people who is credited with having a significant influence on Roger's career is his trainer, Pierre Paganini, who's a, uh, he's a Swiss, uh, he has a decathlon background, a a track and field acumen, but, um, even Roger, I mean, he's very deft at how he, uh, credits people with, impacting his career, but especially people around his circle and Roger himself have conceded without Pierre, the, the longevity is probably not, uh, a given. And so, I mean, I, I became really interested in, in the story of how these two work together. Um, and, and this especially stood out from the book that, uh, Pierre Paganini was referred to as a sounding board, a spiritual guide, and the final word on schedule. So over his career, I mean, we, we talked about in two years, he played 182 matches. Those are, I mean, marathons in and of themselves to be out there for hours and hours, uh, sprint, stop, sprint, stop, recover, sprint, stop. That's the nature of the game. And it was Pierre Paganini who, who intuited that and then put it into a program of, you know, th- this, uh, as he said, be fast repeatedly for a long time. So in tennis training, it doesn't, I think the old school fitness training is, is, Hey, go for a run and work on your, work on your quote cardio, uh, and your endurance there. But, uh, it's a really 
I mean, I, I, I so enjoy the sport because of that, that short burst intensity where you are all out for you know, 20 seconds, if that, uh, and then you're resting for 20 seconds. It's somewhat Tabata-like. You, you've got 60 seconds on a changeover to sit in your chair and regroup. But uh, you, you, I, when we talk about the ease of Federer's performance, you pretty much never would see him breathing heavily through the mouth. None of this. He's not gasping for air. He's not flushed. He's not looking. Uh, I, I think one of the things people also point to in contrast with him and Rafa, Rafa is, is you know, a couple points into the match and he's, and he's standing over the baseline bouncing the ball for his serve and you see the sweat cascading down his, down his nose and off of his body. And, you know, three hours into a tennis match, it looks like Roger Federer is barely sweating. And so that will rub people the wrong way. It seems a little bit of uh, Prince Charming that, oh, he's too dainty to sweat, but he, he's a worker and he's a fighter. And that that's shown through the more you read about his training. And it, a lot of it is kept from the pages of, of this book. I mean, a lot of it is certainly private, but uh, one of the themes of this tribute is the importance of team. And we don't really appreciate that when we look at individual athletes, uh, especially in a sport like tennis where they're isolated on the court of performance from their box. The rules have only recently changed that uh, coaches are able to communicate. It's not so much coaching with their players, but they're able to uh, exclaim some motivation, um, maybe a reminder here and there. The rules are quite a gray gray area at the moment because uh, I think the rule says something like you're not able to communicate full sentences or anything like that, but it is a very isolating sport to be out there with no no reprieve and you're not able to check in with your coaches and, and get that any sort of reset or pivot in your tactics. So it's very lonely. And that's why preparation is is such a pivotal element of your performance. You ha- and it's not just game plan. I mean, it's, it's certainly the training. So the fact that it, Roger has a has a quarter quarter century long relationship with someone like Pierre Paganini, uh, I think it speaks volumes to not only his loyalty, but his understanding of what when you've when you've established a relationship with someone and it is so productive to your career. Uh, I mean, to, to be cliched, it's one of those, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But uh, the the world of tennis training from a physical standpoint, and, and as I said, this is something that keenly interests me with what, with what I plan to do with my coaching career, there still seems to be a lot of missing links. And, and we see this with, with the... The injuries, even for young kids, uh, a lot of young players have missed a fair amount of time in the last couple of years with serious injuries, and and they're not even playing the same volume of matches that guys like Roger grew up playing. So so it's a really interesting case study there. But I wanted to highlight uh, Pierre's influence on Roger's career because he was with him from the jump. And so you see in the early 2000s this incredibly fit uh, and, and graceful player who... Uh, one of his proudest records I know is that Roger Federer has never retired from a match, despite some injuries that he's sustained uh, in uh, in matches, and that's as good a reason as any to retire uh, and and not stick it out to the end of your best of three or best of five sets. Never has he retired. That is, um, I think, a grit that 
often gets overlooked. And, and there actually was an interview I heard about where uh, Roger was asked if it if it's perturbing or annoying to him at all that people talk so much about his, uh, his effortless movement and, and how he makes it look so easy and people don't talk about his grit enough. And he said, yeah, that bothers me. And that's another glimpse of his humanity. I mean, it, I, I, I like to say Roger Federer made crying cool again because either in a win or a loss, he, he would still, I don't know if it was a loss of control over his emotions because certainly within the confines of the match, uh, we, we witnessed this, this superhuman control over his emotion and, and he would let it out positively. The, the screams of and, and come on and let's go and Ale, uh, he's a multilingual Swiss international. So he, he has lots of, uh, lots of shouts that he goes to, but, um, you know, still there was the, the occasional in, in the, in the darker days of his career, which I'll, I'll be getting to in a little bit, uh, there was some of the, the shouting, some cursing, um, you know, some, the, there is a, an infamous incident in 2009 playing Djokovic where he smashed a racket on court. And it's amazing that those things are exceptional in his career, these outbursts. But man, at the, at the podium, when he's got the microphone in his hand, uh, not afraid or ashamed to let the tears go. Again, both in the in the ecstasy of victory and in the crushing disappointment of defeat, and as a very emotional player myself, I, I was really drawn to that, and not necessarily in that it's a, a license to be overly emotional, but uh, just the fact that you don't have to be so stoic, uh, because I mean we, we get told a lot. I, I think it's really counter to our nature when people say take emotion out of it or, or get your emotions under control. Uh, that's a, that's a really insurmountable demand to make of people because we're not robots, despite what people might want us to be. And, uh, even though I, I, I think they're, uh, so, someone who also had a tremendous influence on Roger Federer's career was Stefan Ed- Edberg. Uh, amazing Swiss player in the in the eighties and nineties, serving volleyer and just superbly gifted volleyer and aggressive player. But people thought of him as a robot because he was em- emotionless, and uh, that clearly worked well for Edberg, and uh, it brought him a lot of a lot of victory and and acclaim. But uh, but it took a Roger Federer, especially in the age of more media coverage. That, that's sort of an underlying part of this story as well, is that as, a, as a, one of the greatest players of all time, he also was part of the expanding era of mass media. Tennis became much more accessible through the tennis channel, broadcasting deals really like never before. Uh, but, but when I was watching him live in 2004, as a 10-year-old, I, I wasn't exactly watching tennis TV all the time. But uh, certainly over the course of the next decades, you had a lot more ability to witness these players and watch them over the course of a season. And tennis season is a long season. It starts in mid-January. They play till uh, mid-November. I mean, you're, you're hard-pressed to find a more demanding schedule like that. So this is where the team becomes so critical. And I, and I thought it was really fascinating that someone like Pierre Paganini, a trainer in his camp, was the final say on scheduling to help Roger plan uh, the 
the union of tough, consistent work and then rest and escape. And the rest and escape portion is, is especially profound because this is partly at the, at the center of the story of Roger Federer that how he so fluidly transitions between the, the heights of competition to what, what seems to be, I mean, he just seems like such a, uh, normal is a, almost seems like an epithet to describe him. But, uh, from what you learn about people who cover the sport and, and people who are near and dear to the Federer family is that he has this uncanny ability to transition from the, the throes of what, what, from where I sit and, and I would imagine from their position on center court, it feels like a duel. It, it, it is the closest thing. I didn't grow up watching boxing or fighting or any of the, uh, combat sports. I, I do really enjoy them now because I've, I've explored more of the warrior spirit. Uh, and it, it's, it's so captivating to me that people can put their lives on the line like that. Tennis, even though they're separated by 70 plus feet, uh, each, each winner feels like, feels like a liver shot and it, each, uh, ace feels like a jab to the face. I mean, there, there's so many parallels between, boxing, combat sports, what have you, and tennis. Uh, they, they really do feel like they're dueling and it, and it, and it seems so physical, even though they're just hitting the ball that in and of itself is physical. When, when you're thinking about the, the torque and tension it takes to uncoil and fire a ball across the court, try to hit it past someone with outstanding speed. It's so physical And and it gets me fired up just talking about it. But, uh, but this is, this is all to say that it, it is very pugilistic. Uh, they, they are fighters out there dueling and only one guy's moving on and it, defeats can be narrow or there can be a knockout victory. I've mentioned this before. Andre Agassi talked about turning points, just like in life, any point can be a turning point. And that's, that's singular. I mean, there's, there's not necessarily turning points. There's these pivotal moments that make or break you as a person and your ability to perform and achieve greatness within a match, within a tournament, within a career. And so it's, it never ceased to amaze me how Federer was able to, I mean, as I said, very, he was very resilient, but, uh, I, I was also witness to some of the most crushing defeats of his career. And this is a transition into chapter two, which is for, for me, uh, has to be the greatest tennis match of all time in my lifetime, and I've seen some amazing ones. But the 2008 Wimbledon final, Federer versus Nadal. Federer had Bjorn Borg, one of his other idols in the stands. I, as I think for that match, uh, Federer had won four Wimbledons in a row. Five. He was looking to break Borg's record of consecutive Wimbledons one in a row. He had beaten Nadal the previous year. Uh, Nadal, as I said, four or five years younger than Roger, clay court specialist, dominant champion at Roland Garros and all the clay court tournaments. And without Rafa, I mean, Roger is definitely one of the best clay court players ever. But the fact that they were always up against each other on the red dirt uh, made for some really compelling matches over the years. But it was it was shocking to see 
truly shocking and, and disconcerting as a Federer fan to see this muscle-bound Spanish bastard <laughs> uh, vie for the Wimbledon Championship. And, and to do it with such... Uh, I mean, it's, it's emotional even to harken back to that memory because as, the, as they battled each other, as the sun said, there, there's so many poetic elements to that match in 2008. The sun's going down. By the time they're deep into the fifth set, uh, the, the people who are there talk about how it's significantly darker than what you see on TV. Because TV, even in 08, they have the technology to brighten the display. You can better see the ball. You can better see the grass and the players. But on court, in the in the shroud and shadow of center court in, in London, England, at well into the evening, I think it's 7 o'clock there or, or maybe later, uh, they can hardly see the ball. And it's after you know, almost five hours of playing on court and again, that, that's that narrow focus intensity that if you blink, literally, the match could be over. And so Federer with so much on the line, and, and I think if we were to put ourselves in these shoes of, of expectations, where if we find ourselves, whether in sport, in business, in life, where we go into a situation feeling like we're supposed to be the victor, and I'm not saying Roger felt this way at the time, but the rest of us feeling this way that it's his home court. He's been here, you know, four or five times before. He beat Pete Sampras the, the first and only time they ever played at Wimbledon, beat him in five sets. Uh, you just think there's there's a, a, a an inertia of destiny behind someone like Roger Federer going to play on center court in Wimbledon. And maybe some of that crept into, into his psyche as well. But for him to then lose to Nadal in, in that setting with, with so much at stake, just in terms of legacy history, uh, what, what would then really set the tone for their rivalry? Um, it does seem like a crushing defeat, uh, especially to be in a fifth set where it's, it's really only down to who's the first to win six or seven games and, and take home the trophy. Um, this is, one of the more quixotic elements of the Roger Federer story that only in hindsight am I able to appreciate because I remember sobbing uh, <laughs> as, a, as a 14, 13, 14 year old getting ready to go into my freshman year of high school, uh, just, just finished middle school and sitting there in front of the TV for those four and a half plus hours only to have it come crashing down as you watch Nadal crumble to the grass in, in, ecstasy of victory and, and Roger has to bow his head and go to the net and shake his hand. I mean, you, you, you couldn't ask for more. I, again, I get, I get romantic and emotional, emotional about the game of tennis because of these, these things that make it so human. The fact that you have, it, it is expected in the comportment of the game of tennis, you as a competitor then go to the net to shake hands with the person who just beat you. And offer some sort of congratulations, well played, it's your day, well done. And then you have to be the first one to go shake hands with the umpire and then bow your head, go back to your chair while your opponent dances around the court, celebrates, uh, enjoys all of the applause. I mean, it's very, you, you might think it's no different than any other sport where the winners get the applause and the, and the losers have to hang their head and go back to the locker room. But again, because it's so 
lonely. And every, every outcome is on your shoulders. I, I, think, I think that's why the wins and the losses mean so much more and, and are felt so much, more, so much deeper than anything else. And, uh, I mean, with that 08 Wimbledon loss, it's not necessarily like we all thought, well, Nadal's got his number now and we'll never see Roger again. But uh, you, you saw that he was vulnerable. You believed that if, if Nadal can beat him on his, on his own turf, literally on his own turf, maybe he's his kryptonite. And as we give credence to the people who have had the most profound influence on, on sculpting the, the statue of Roger Federer and wh- why his image and his, his memory will be preserved throughout sports history, uh, you need a foil. And Rafael Nadal, it, it can't be understated. I, I, I will certainly have to do a tribute to Rafa one of these days uh, when, when his uh, retirement comes because you can't help but be grateful. And Roger Federer has said the same. I mean, even in those heart-wrenching moments and losses, and quite a few of them came at Rafa's hands in slam finals, in Masters finals. Um, the, the Rogers talked about how the wins and the losses balance out, that, uh, that there have been tournaments he won and matches he's won, points he's won that maybe he shouldn't have, losses where he had the match win on his racket and couldn't make it happen. Uh, they do balance out. And I, I think it's been remarkable to see that happen both on the court and off the court for those two. They've become great friends. If you watched any of the Labor Cup or you know any of the story about Roger's retirement, he elected of his own volition to play his final match, final professional match as doubles partner to Rafa Nadal. So it, it, it sort of erodes the concept of a bitter rivalry. Um, they, they became, despite their differences, I think exceptionally grateful for what the other was able to, to do because it, it looked like, I mean, my impression was throughout the 2000s and really up until 2008, even though uh, uh, Roger had lost to Rafa before that, uh, not, not on grass, mind you, but, but at other tournaments, especially on clay, uh, you he had that aura as they all did at varying points that whomever their opponent was there, I think their opponent, it looked like their opponent went in feeling inferior that they were going to have to do something extraordinary in order to take down a Roger Federer, especially on grass. And, and, and yes, they, yes, he became more vulnerable, but, but it, it continued for many years that if your name wasn't Rafa Nadal, if you were, paired up against Roger Federer in a match, it really did seem like the the defeat would come sooner than the handshake at the match. You know what I mean? It, it felt like people were more easily deflated when they came up against Roger because he still maintained this overpowering presence on the court. And one of the few people in tennis history in this, in this quarter century career who defied that was Rafa Nadal. 
Novak Djokovic came hot on the heels of that, started to, uh, even though Roger had his number early on, uh, Novak really rose to prominence and, and, and defied what a lot of people thought was possible, became another core rival in that group. They're referred to now admirably as the big three, who have taken every stage from every other player and I mean the the stats around their presence at Grand Slams and and major championship wins, master tournament wins. I mean they, it, it's unprecedented what Nadal, Federer, and Djokovic have done. But uh, but two of them have not retired yet. So this is this is to bring it back to Federer. And from two thousand eight onward, what became I mean yeah the the next ten plus years or so where they continued to vie for every title, felt like they were always meeting in quarterfinals, semis, and finals. Uh, you couldn't ask for more as a tennis fan. They were the most deserving combatants. And what they elicited from each other uh, is, is it's been hard for them to describe, but uh, even as a, first as a fan, it, your, your biases can thwart your ability to appreciate that sort of rivalry when you are rooting wholeheartedly for Federer, as I did more often uh, times than not. Uh, and then to have your, your, hopes and dreams dashed uh, by, by another amazing player, it, it, it is hard to appreciate that. But this is the beauty of Roger's perspective and his ability to step back. Over the course of his career, he's been able to speak to, yes, it fucking crushed me to lose those matches, but at the same time, it, every time it lit a fire or, or it reignited a fire. And when you if you've heard professional athletes talk about the potentially empty feeling of reaching your goals of, okay, I've won as Roger Federer ended up doing eight Wimbledons. What, what doesn't, what keeps you chasing eight and how come you're not satisfied with one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, uh, what, what, if you've won a Grand Slam, five, ten, what, what keeps you going? Because truly, I, mean, I, I have done a fair bit of research into hearing, especially individual sport athletes, Olympians, fighters, golfers, tennis players, etc. Uh, when they achieve a, a major championship or title or accolade uh, and, and all of their training and resilience has brought them to that, and with all the visualization they've done to, to realize that reality, when they get there, it can be a letdown. And I think some of the few people who have been immune to that include Roger Federer. And to bring this point back around, uh, his, his fluidity of character and, and of awareness has preserved him against that letdown. And what I mean by that is he, he has this, or, or had, should I say, uh, I'm, I'm going to have to quote from the book, The Master by Chris Clary, uh, this as, a, as one of his uh, uh, former athlete, a, a Swiss, uh, Swiss player, Mark Rossett, uh, who was a top player before Federer's time, uh, this nonchalant, so I'll, I'll quote from Rossett here, uh, Roger was very relaxed, very at ease, pretty much nonchalant. I think it was a bit of the South African side he got from his mother. There was nothing Swiss about that. What fascinated me about Roger then and still is that he manages to live in the present. He has a great ability to take things as they come. He lives a moment, 
experiences it fully, takes pleasure in it, and finishes it and then moves on to the next. It's for that reason you have the feeling that things happen very naturally with him. It's a talent. And to be honest, it's a talent that even today fascinates me more than his tennis. So for the rest of us who have been spectators and are not in the inner circle like Mark Rossa was, um, only recently have we been able to uh, glimpse behind the curtain and, and see that. But I, I would imagine that is part of the, the capital D diet that has allowed Federer to have this longevity because you all know if you've been following the podcast, my core belief in the mind-body and that what we experience internally and our thoughts and emotions is not separate from, from our physical reality. So for someone like Roger to intuit that, to, to practice it, uh, and reading the book was, was such a revelation for me to verify that, I, I think that's a key ingredient, like I said, in his, in his capital D diet and in, in all of the inputs and outputs that go into making the, the athlete, that he's been able to fully immerse himself in the experience of any given moment. And when that moment is a devastating defeat, to, to feel that, to, to really, really sit in it. I, I've, I've talked about for myself, one of the greatest things about my growing experience has been in moments of discomfort or disappointment, something I, I've been, if I've done something that was counter to my character or my standards for myself, instead of quickly moving on and either ignoring, I mean, I, I, I can make that mistake too of, of don't dwell on it, just move on. But sometimes you do need to need to wallow in it for a little bit. It's not days, it's not weeks, but you, you have to be in touch with that emotion. And truly, I mean, when I say Roger made crying cool again, um, I thought that was really exceptional that he would, that he would give in to emotion like that and positive emotion as well. I mean, he, he certainly cried a lot when he won and there was the passion, um, of, of achieving something like that, that really shone through as well. But, um, you know, the, the, the mind body component as well that I wanted to uh, address is, uh, because, because it, it is worth spending some time talking about, there is this innate and undeniable beauty to his game. Um, if I, if I'm being critical of Novak Djokovic, I think the things we talk about in his game or in Rafa's game is, is not quite the beauty. There's, there's different elements that, that make them unique, um, but if you've ever watched a Rolex commercial uh, during a, a tennis tournament, and and if there's a frame by frame slow motion of of Roger Federer swinging and, and murdering a ball, uh, even though it's a powerful act, uh, this this stillness of his head, there's hardly a hair out of place. One of the things that, from a technical standpoint, is so captivating with if you watch a Roger Federer stroke, um, his his head and his focus. That, that ball is long gone and his arm has wrapped around his shoulders and his head is still staring at that spot where the ball was. That, that is a lesson to all of us players, to be sure. Uh, but I, I, I can tell you from my own experience, of th- there's really two things that take someone's eye off of a ball when you're playing tennis. Number one is you want to look at the great shot that you thought you just hit and meanwhile it's sailing over the fence into the, into the river. 
uh, or you think the ball is coming right back at you too quickly, so you need to be looking up and, and be alert again. And the the confidence, the grace, the trust in his game that Roger displays when he has that that fortitude of focus to keep looking at the spot where the ball was and fully finish and follow through, let his body uncoil and coil again before he resets and split steps and, and re-engages in the point. There's a, there's a wonderful lesson in that uh, for, for all of us, which is, again, it speaks to his presence, is that the only thing that matters is not what is this, what does this point mean in the match? What's my opponent doing? It's said in tennis anyway, you play the ball, not the opponent. And of course, professional players, world-class players have that uh, unconscious sense of, of court movement and, and what they want to do based on their opponent's skill. But I know they'll tell you that really all that matters is that ball that's coming at you. And are you focused enough to watch your, your racket swing past you and have that intensity to lock in just for a split second, just for a split second, because that's all that matters. It's, it's a, it's a presence of mind that when we talk about flow, I've talked about flow before on this podcast, you, you can't question, you can't be too far outside of yourself because if you do, that then you lose the, the, uh, you, you lose the connection with flow. Flow is about this unconscious state where it's challenging and it's immersive and it requires your full attention to the exclusion of external stimuli. That, that's been one of the definitions uh, of Dr. Jim Lair, uh, who's someone I, I greatly admire in the sports psych space. He says that mental toughness is defined, or, or I, I think it's he, uh, he has compiled this definition of mental toughness from other uh, athletes and teachers and psychologists, but it is the focus on a present task to the exclusion of external stimuli. So excluding sight, sound, senses, the, the meaning of any given point, and just focusing on what's my technique. What am I doing to hit this ball well, where I want it, and be, be reset, split step on to the next point. Uh, few people have really, again, the consistency is staggering from Roger Federer over the course of his career that he's been able to constantly regroup within a match. I mean, I, I think, um, as I'll get to shortly, um, with, with his, uh, so to speak, comeback in 2017, when, when, or if we've counted him out, uh, I mean, few, few champions are wire to wire champions. He has won, uh, several tournaments where he never dropped a set, which is uh, just a, a fascinating feat in and of itself. But um, it's it's a part of his game and his career that does not get enough attention. Is his his resilience, uh, especially emotional resilience, uh, to to go back to his childhood. I mean, it, we those of us who have followed the game and know a bit of his story, and he's one of the first people to admit it as well that he was. Uh, an emotional wreck, very much a hothead, throwing rackets, pouting. And this was even after he was on the pro tour. And yes, he entered as a 18, 19, 20 year old, I believe. Uh, but it took many years for him to, uh, really lock in his emotions. And again, not, not to totally neglect them, 
but you just have a very short bandwidth for what you're able to allow yourself in a tennis match. Because if you get too emotional, either way, if it's, if it's riding the positivity high or it's negative emotion, it will derail you. It, it will compromise your focus. And one of the people who, especially Roger attributes to helping him master uh, his, his emotional approach, not master his emotions, but, but his approach for them is his mother, Lynette. Um, the quote earlier from Mark Rosset uh, uh, talked about his mother's South African influence. Yet there is a stoicism that comes with that as I've uh, followed the rugby game. Uh, that, that is apparent from the Springbok team. But um, I mean, uh, two, two stories and, and quotes I love from, from Lynette Federer uh, number one was uh, when, when he was young and, and on the pro tour early, uh, she told him that whenever you get upset, throw your racket, scream, lash out, you're revealing a chink in your armor and your opponent's going to exploit that and pierce you and, and take you out. And that's a, I mean, every young tennis player should hear that. Uh, especially when, when you're young and maybe you don't have a, a particular grasp of where your emotions come from or how to cope with that. But even in the, especially if you're super competitive, like I was, like a lot of young athletes are, they're uber intense competitive. Uh, that's, a, that's a potent reminder that you're only showing someone, I, I, think, I think her follow-up quote to that was, you're just saying, beat me. Uh, keep, I'm, I'm fragile. I'm, I'm emotionally frail. I have a chink in my armor. Beat me here. And so many of the games within games within tennis is not conceding any of that to an opponent, not, not giving them any sort of boost to make them feel like, oh, this guy's about to fall apart. I'm going to, I'm, this is going to be a turning point right here because I'm going to take him out and it's going to be break point and he's going to, you know, emotionally flub this. So, uh, you know, there's, there's many great women behind any any great man, and Mrs. Federer Rogers' mom is no exception. One of the other uh, great stories I heard about her that, that attests to, uh, to Rogers' intensity, uh, which apparently even until his 40 and 41st year, that one, uh, one of the only rules for practice is to never let the ball bounce twice. And I love that because that requires an intensity where you're, you're always engaged. And so in, in practice, your, your rallying partner can hit the ball out or hit it short, but the point is you go for it. And, uh, the, I, I got to witness this personally and I'll, I'll get to my experience, uh, in 2019 in a moment, but, uh, even in practice. And the, one of my other favorite stories of Roger is that he's, uh, quoted as saying that I didn't know you were supposed to win in practice, which means that, and th- this, this is, really important for those of us who, who are learning new things is it's not about the success markers so much. I mean, when you're practicing, when you're, when you're trying something new, when you're refining your skills, even someone with world, world-class ability like him, which is honed through thousands and thousands of hours on the practice court, uh, you, you can, you can remove the pressure of winning. And not everyone agrees with this. I mean, I, I know there are some critiques of that. It can be very unique to the athlete in the camp, but I, that really resonated with me because even on the practice court, I can get really hung up on, well, that ball I was just trying to hit up the line was two inches out, or I'm, I'm working on that. I just lost two, three practice points in a, in a row. What the hell? And 
as often as I remember, I didn't know you were supposed to win in practice. It takes me back to the place of, of, of humility as a student that, especially in a game like tennis, where you get constant error feedback. I hit the ball into the net. I hit the ball right to my opponent's forehand and he blasted it past me. I hit the ball long, etc. Uh, it should humble you to go back to that reset, to go back to fundamentals. And no, nowhere else is that more apparent than on the practice court where you're supposed to be working through sticky spots. And uh, it's true. I, I heard the world-class jiu-jitsu coach John Donaher speak about this, that anytime you pick up a new tactic, practice, uh, stroke, technique, whatever, uh, it is going to set, m- make you practice like a novice again, where even though you might have a skill set, you, when, when you try to put it into, a, into practice, you're going to come up short and you're going to look like a fool. And where the, where the growth happens is being able to have a conversation with your ego where you understand it's, it's okay and it's expected that I'm not going to win and I'm not going to perform this perfectly every time. But the growth phase is, is, is in being knocked on your ass a few times and sitting there and saying, gosh, this is uncomfortable. How do I, how do I stop ending up here so much? And then, then that's where you really start to learn. And uh, it's, it, it's a, just a beautiful sentiment that, that he, it speaks, it's, it attests to his emotional quotient, his, his EQ, his emotional intelligence. And uh, it, it really, I, I think, is a necessary complement to his physical game. Uh, and, it, and it leads to, uh, once more, the harmony of mind-body. One other excerpt I'll take from, uh, from the book is uh, one of my other favorite tennis players of all time, Andy Roddick, U.S. Open champion, American great International Tennis Hall of Famer. Uh, I think he only beat Roger three times in all the matches they played, something like 20-plus like matches. A lot of those were in Wimbledon finals, U.S. Open finals, Masters finals. You just feel for the guy, and, and he still had... Uh, such a respect for Roger because he saw, as evidenced by this excerpt, this uncanny ability to have his have his mind all, always be in common with his body. So, so Roddick said, uh, it's really saying something when you're serving 140 miles per hour and the guy across the net's not in a rush. You don't do that without having complete control of your hands. If I serve 140 against most people, they're making an exaggerated movement. They're getting their body out of the way. Roger was in complete control, even if he was uncomfortable. So that was probably more annoying to me than a lot of the other things. <laughs> Just think of all those wasted extra movements the rest of us make throughout our careers that he's not making, Roddick said. That's saving a lot of mileage and a lot of stress. The racket is like an extension of his hand, and that's kind of what it felt like when you were facing him. That... that <laughs> there are so many ways you can sum up the, the physical manifestations of what Roger Federer was able to achieve in his career. But, uh, it, it bespeaks this, uh, uh, truly the, the fluidity, the, the natural expression that when you feel like is, and it's true the I, I still attest he has the, the best racket skills of, of the modern generation. Yes. There's new racket string technology and all that, but, uh, truly, I mean, the, the, presence of mind body that he was able to exhibit for the entirety of his career 
is is unparalleled in in my mind, and that's a great example because Roddick was, uh, with the exception, and and Roddick was a smaller guy than some of the big servers we see today, John Isner, Riley Opelka, uh, Karlovich, all guys who are six nine, six ten. I mean, you know, they're they're these titans who are just bashing the ball down into the court. Roddick is six uh, one and just had this uh, in, incredibly dynamic serving motion that he would he would pop balls off at 140 145 consistently 130 plus hitting a second serve at 130 uh disconcerted most of the players he played except for roger who was able with this efficiency of movement to just to just block the ball back and uh andy roddick another uh incredibly high eq player was able to realize and and put into words that just by dint of minimalizing these extraneous movements, uh, movements and and potentially the emotional physical stress that would come with that, Roger was able to mitigate a lot of that. And I agree. I think I think that preserved a lot of his a lot of his uh, mileage and endurance throughout his career. That he was able to have this efficiency of technique. And we know. I mean, this is why I, I have become so passionate about proper technique in the weight room, in tennis, that is how you avoid injury through an efficiency of movement. And that, that is different from every, for every player, for every person who's lifting a weight, who's doing a squat, who's swinging a golf club, etc. Uh, and you have to learn that for yourself. But once you lock it in, I mean, Roger has only made very, very slight variations in his strokes over the years. And it only comes down to things like grip and wrist placement and finger movement, uh, which have have really um, extraordinary. I, I think every one degree change in in your grip on a tennis racket um, changes the trajectory of the ball by thirty degrees. I mean, it, it, it's these very slight changes that have significant differences. And and Roger was able. He's talked about he w- he was never very big into analytics or any of the data, um, he's just about feel. And you only really achieve that if you have mind-body harmony. And I think I think few other places was this more apparent than when he made, he took several months off, uh, called his season very, very early in 2016, and took the time to go back to the drawing board, recover, had knee surgery, uh, as he talks about, spent a lot of great time with his family. And w- one of the other pillars of his career that I, I think about often was his return to professional tennis at the 2017 Australian Open. I believe he was the 17th seed, played several wildly intense and demanding five-set matches en route to the final, I, th- I think quarterfinal, semifinal, were all five-set matches for him against really tough opponents. And who does he end up facing in the final? None other than his lifelong rival, Rafa Nadal, and they battle for five sets. I think at one point uh, in the fifth set, Roger went down love three or one four, and, and it really looked like he was going to lose another final to Rafa. And he, to say that he rose to the occasion would be a, a an unfortunate understatement because the level of tennis that they both played, I, I have rarely seen before or since. It, w- it was such a, a razor's edge of competition that I don't know if I was quite in this uh, student of the game phase, but 
Uh, I, I didn't, maybe, maybe my vitriol for Nadal had, had softened a little bit, but I, I was just absolutely enthralled by the level there. And uh, I still, in my mind's eye, I can see on, uh, on match point, Roger jumping up and down after the, after the replay confirms that his ball was in, ready to ball his eyes out. And just this, this emotional release that, you know, it, it wells up in the heart of you as a, as a student or fan or whatever you want to call it of physical performance that he was able to, I mean, it, it, it was sort of a grind out. I mean, at, at that age, five years ago, he's 36. He's, he's just off of a, uh, six, seven months off knee surgery, hasn't played really any competitive tennis and to have it culminate in, in, in his 18th Grand Slam championship uh, over a, a bit over a, a, a rival, uh, it really doesn't get more romantic than that. And I, I, I think about it so often because, I mean, he went on to have absolutely sensational year, beat, beat Rafa four or five more times in, in matches, a lot of them in finals. One Miami, one Indian Wells, some some also world class tournaments, and it, it was a resurgence that a lot of people didn't think was possible. And so, it it goes beyond confidence. I mean, it it really is a a. I mean, this is this is when I get emotional as well because there's a heroic element to what these guys are able to do when they've been. Overlooked. I mean, in the interim, when he when he was out, people were already on to this is the age of Andy Murray. This is the age of Novak Djokovic. I think I think end of 2016, Andy Murray became world number one, and uh, you know people were ready to move on from Roger. Hey, great career, 17 slams, good for you, uh, or or 16 or whatever he had at the time, and uh, you you can see the temptation into complacency. And hey, whatever I have from here on out is icing. But this is this is why I wanted to give due tribute to his career that he he came back with with a maturity and a fire uh, that was really inspiring, and and it cascaded into as I said a, a sensational 2017, uh, won Wimbledon that year as well, many other tournaments in between, uh, and. Uh, and, and then won the Australian Open in 2018 the next year. I mean, just a, a phenomenal return to greatness and to the competitive world that, that people really didn't anticipate. Uh, pe- people even like the great Martina Navratilova going into 2017 said, I, I think this is, I think Rogers probably won all of the slams he's going to win. And he went out and won three more. And you, you just love a story like that, don't you? I mean, for, for such a, I've, I've neglected to this point to talk about his likability, but uh, one, one of the other great records that Roger Federer holds is 19 years in a row, he was voted by the fans, the tour favorite, fan favorite for 19 years in a row. And, and that doesn't happen unless you are, like, like that can't just be, all, that's not just all on court. It, it is, first of all, I mean, to- totally avoiding any, any scandal, any, any bad word in the press. Never been a thing like that. Uh, 
which is which is so rare in modern sport, right? I mean, you you can nitpick anybody. Uh, almost no one's immune from that. And so, but but we even if he did have something, um, and and I'm sure I'm sure there are things I don't know about. Uh, he's he's human for uh, for God's sakes, but uh, still, I mean, to, he he does inspire this this fealty, this loyalty, because of his humanity. Uh, it, it's true. I, it, it's said that everyone in the world thinks they're Roger Federer's number one fan. I'm rocking the hat. I got the books behind me. I've got the stories um, to tell, and and two last ones coming up as we as we conclude this tribute. But uh, he's he's inspired such a such a connection with the world. And he's, he's also done it. And, and he's also picked up that mantle of responsibility. When you become that level of role model, he, I know, I know he's spoken about this. He feels the obligation, so to speak, to, to live up to that standard. It's one he has for himself. I don't, I don't think it brings him any sort of un, undue, um, dread or angst or anything like that, but he, he felt that responsibility to take the game to places like South Africa, South America, places where um, international tour tennis does not really have a foothold. China as well. I mean, in, in the Asian countries, he's, he's done a lot of great work over there. His foundation does a lot of work in Africa, especially South Africa. Um, he, he's, he, he's just a remarkable person. And I, I think for those of us in North America, we're so inundated with the spotlight on North, North American athletes in football, hockey, baseball, basketball. And it, that spotlight pales in comparison to being an individual athlete on the world stage. And the way he's risen to that and done it with such aplomb and gratitude and, and the fun that he has. People talk about it. I mean, it's, it's so... Uh, he's, he's always smiling, joking. He's very self-deprecating. He's very, uh, understated. Um, I think, I think you only get there if, if you have a life of, and, and this is, this is where we get into his legacy that goes so far beyond numbers. We're going to remember him for his character and, uh, <laughs> uh I'm, I'm laughing because, uh, there, yeah, I mean, I, I just think about how many times he, he makes these awkward jokes and off-court in, interviews that only make himself laugh, and, and you, you just can't help but love it. And we're going to miss that because I, I don't know who is primed in the next generation. In the, in the background here, I have, uh, I have uh, Dominic Team on, and I, I'm really a huge fan of Dominic Team. He struggled a lot with injury. He actually worked with Pierre Paganini, uh, Federer's trainer back in the day when, when team was coming up, but you're, you're hard pressed to predict who, who is going to be the future of this level of world-class performance and world-class character. And, and that's, what's so inspiring to me about Roger, what Roger did, uh, throughout the course of his career. Um, you know, I'll, I'll say lastly to, to, moments that, that are really definitive in my mind of Roger's career, um, rounded out in 2019 when I had the incredible serendipitous fortune of going to Indian Wells, which is considered the fifth grand slam. I mean, it, it's such a, uh, uh, unrivaled tournament. 
uh, for the setting. You've got the the mountains in the background at that time of year. It's it's hot. It's in the eighties. It's in March in in the desert um, in uh, Coachella Valley in in California, and in a thirty six hour span, we were lucky enough to see on the tournament court and the practice court, Nadal, Djokovic, and Federer. And I mean, t- total made me feel like a, like a boy again, to be court level with these guys. I mean, I, I have this incredible image. I'll have to include it in the visual here, but, uh, of Djokovic practicing in the forecourt and, and in the, uh, background is Federer practicing. And then the snowcatch mountains in the back, R- really something out of, a, a of a comic book of, of your heroes. But, uh, uh, Roger went on to uh, to make the final in that tournament. Played uh, played team in the end, and, and team beat him, which was really uh, quite an impressive accomplishment for Dominic Team. But um, later that year as well, Roger still playing great. I mean, this is um, less than a year removed from from more titles in 2018. He makes the Wimbledon final, and it's the first year where they've instituted a fifth set tiebreak rule at 12 all. Wouldn't you know it, he's competing against Novak Djokovic in the final. And such a such a high pace. I mean, it's it's grass, so they're both charging the net. The, the points are ending so quickly, so so viciously, so violently. Uh, I think Federer had a had a 6-1 third set. Uh, but they go to the fifth set at 12 all. And one of the unforgettable moments of that match is that before they get to the tiebreak, Federer had match points. Or, or, or only one match point, I should say. And, I mean, shoot, when you... And, and on his racket, while he's serving, and if you, you, you couldn't... If you ask a player like that, would you like the match on your racket, match point against Novak Djokovic at Wimbledon Center Court, Roger Federer could not have asked for more. And he was dashed. and Didn't convert that match point, and in the tie break, in the fifth set, he loses. To another world-class rival... Uh, someone very deserving, someone gritty. One of my favorite stories from Novak Djokovic from that match is a very pro-Federer crowd chanting, Roger, Roger, Roger. And I'm on the edge of my seat thinking I would do the same. And Novak tells the story after that the the mind trick he had to play was that he had to tell himself that they were chanting, Novak, Novak, Novak. That is the mental insanity <laughs> to a degree that you have to embrace to overcome a, a colossus like Roger Federer. And I, again, to, to speak to the humanity of watching Federer go to the net, despondent, sit in his chair with the thousand yard stare, thinking about what it could have been, the, the emotions boiling up inside of him as he has to go to, to the podium say words complimenting Novak, speak to his defeat. Uh, I think that grace is arguably more impressive than him swinging a racket because so, so much of is so much is demanded of you as a tennis player, as an individual athlete, that your coach is not going to get up uh, on the podium or to the microphone and say, hey, we could have done this, that, and the other thing differently. It's all I, and it could create an egomaniac, selfish, self-absorbed person. And yet, instead, what we get is a man like Roger Federer, who is able, as his peers have said, I think it was Chrissy Everett said, 
he's able to fall back on happiness. Uh, there's been other stories, not from that match in particular, but crushing defeats where he, he feels the pain of that defeat and then walks through the door of his hotel room or his house and is on the ground calling, crawling around with his two sets of twins. They're, they're grown now, but uh, another, another colorful addition to the, to the story of Roger Federer's life is that he has two sets of twins, if you didn't know that. Um, but, but truly, I mean, I, I, I came to have a deep admiration, and, and worth noting in this day and age, I, I think we are bereft of quality role models especially for men. I, I, I think uh, there are very few examples that young men have to, to genuinely admire other men. And you, I, I couldn't help but admire someone whose career was not only defined by numbers as much by uh, perseverance, character, spirit, discipline, uh, uh, presence. Um, again, it, it's very... It's very depictive of the warrior spirit that you can give your all and come up short and still have the per- perspective that says it's okay. I have, I have other blessings in my life that I can fall back on. And, and as I said, it's said about Roger that he can really fall back on, on his happiness and on the incredible uh, wealth of intangibles that he has in his life. And uh, th- this really came to fruition in his retirement speech, which I'm going to link to in the show notes. It's a, it's a must watch because, uh, it, it's, um, it, it really is the, uh, pinnacle of the emotional life he's, he's led on court. And but when we give due attention to the people who have had, uh, who have helped shape his career, uh, he, he certainly gives, uh, all the credit to his family. But one of the things that really stirred me emotionally was when Jim Courier is on court asking Federer, uh, Roger, your family means so much to you that you've talked about how they've guided you over the course of your career. What would you like to say to them and about them? And and Roger very jokingly says, Oh, we're going to go there now. And he's, he's barely holding on by a thread to his emotions. And, um, you know, for me, uh, where, where I really started to lose it and, and could very well lose it again is when he, is when he starts talking about his wife, Mirka. And I've, I've saved this for the end because, uh, I mean, this did happen, again, at the end of his career, at the end of his retirement speech. Uh, the, the camera pans to Mirka for the, for the broadcast for, I mean, what seemed like a lifetime. Um, she, she's crying, um, you know, <laughs> understandably so. Uh, what people might not know about Mirka is that she was a former player as well. When they met, she's a couple years older than him and had a professional career. I think she was top uh, tw- 30 or, or 20 or uh, still a world-class player, had to retire early from, from chronic foot injuries. But she transitioned into this role as teammate to him and as a, as a, as a wife, mother, very um, integral part of his of his business team as well, uh, which I think is really, I just think that's so cool. I mean, that's exactly something that I want from my partnership going on t- uh, nine years with my girlfriend. I, I can't imagine where we'll be uh, if we're blessed enough to be 20 years on. But uh, one of the things that I love that Roger said in the end was, uh, as, as he's choking back sobs, he said, 
she could have asked me to stop a long time. She could have made me stop a long time ago, and she didn't. Uh, kids at home, two sets of twins, traveling life. Uh, she she totally stepped up and supported me and supported us through all of that and, and never forced him to walk away. I mean, he was given the gift to walk away when he chose to. And I, I think a lot of that is due to how he set himself up and how, he, how well he knows himself, his, his family, his life, that he's able to have the confidence in that decision. Of course, we're all dashed that we won't get to see Roger Federer run around a tennis court anymore, but um, the, the way in which he, he concluded his career is, uh, it's, I don't, I, it, it was handled so beautifully, and uh, I, I would say almost perfectly. Uh, that he he got to dictate it, he got to have fun, he he was able to say what he wanted to say, receive the love, give the love. I mean, that is so much of the cycle of his career is his appreciation for what he was gifted in his natural ability, opportunities, the the good luck of of people and places who surrounded him, and then what he was able to give back with that. That's a a, a universal lesson for life that is part of why I'm so grateful to him and his example. Um, and he says he's not going anywhere. So uh, the, in my tribute here, I, I, I very much hope that's the case because uh, the, the tennis world needs him, the world needs him. Um, I mean, I, I as I said, I, I learned and have channeled so much of his example into my own life. That's uh, why I'm that's why I'm talking about this because I, I, I felt compelled to just get some of this out there um, because it, it, it's marked a, a sort of an epic in my life that this, this man who's been competing and uh, risking and, and producing and training so much for the sport that he loved, um, it's, it's nothing short of inspirational as I seek to do the things that I love and, and commit the same amount of energy, discipline, consistency to it. There's no one else I would rather have as a role model than Roger Federer. So um, I hope if, if you don't know much about him, I've given you uh, enough of a, a, a coloring of, of the portrait of his life that maybe you want to go pick up, pick up some books, look at some interviews. I'll definitely be posting the, uh, the, off, uh, the on-court interviews at his retirement, linking to some classic matches that are on YouTube. Uh, so you'll have a couple, couple hours here and there to consume those. But um, at the end of this, I, I want to express my deep gratitude and admiration for Roger Federer, the man, the athlete, the husband, the father. Um, r- really couldn't have asked for more that my, my growth and my life and the love I have for the sport would overlap with his greatness. And um, I think I've done pretty well keeping my emotions in check as, as he would do. And once again, I'm grateful to you all for tuning into this because this is a, a, a deep sharing of something that's on, on my heart and mind. Um, I think he is one of those historic figures who is deserving of all of the attention and admiration that he gets. So to you, Roger, I tip my cap, take it off for the last time, but no, um, your, your legacy is eternal for sure. So Uh, Thank you for listening to Who's to Say. For today, it's been me, Tom Foolery. And until next time, uh, thank you again for your attention and your willingness to let me share.
part of my story and as much of Roger Federer's story as I can share in this time. So thank you and take care.